Good morning. It's very good to see you. Thank you for, for being here. Um, I was introduced to Kalachis. Is that what it was I had? So I'm, I'm now going to move here, obviously, after eating one of those. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you again for, for being wanting to, willing to engage on, on an issue as significant and as, as delicate as this. What we are planning to do this morning is to think through how, really how we engage with our culture on this, how culture has got to where it is, and how that can shape and frame our own response as we seek to bring the good news of Jesus to, to people around us. But I want to begin by, if you've got a Bible with you or on a phone or something, I thought it'd be lovely to, to open by just looking at how Jesus deals with one particularly sexually broken individual in John chapter 4. Uh, you may know the passage of the woman at the well in Samaria. I thought this would work as a, as a good opening for us. If you've not had a chance, if you're a Christian, you've not had a chance to open the Bible yet this morning. Saturday mornings can be a little hard to do that. Um, I thought we could sort of have a little devotion all together in a way that I hope will, will set us up for thinking through this kind of topic. So I'm going to read through John chapter 4 and, and sort of point out a few things along the way, but I, I want us to see four things about how Jesus relates to us using this, this woman that he encounters as as a kind of test case. So John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So Judea is down in the south, Galilee is up in the north, Samaria is in between. So you have to go through Samaria to get from the, the south to the north. Um, and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here's a couple of things to know. Most, many Jews at that time really despised the Samaritans, the people who lived in the region of Samaria. They were seen as being kind of religious half-breeds in the Old Testament. That whole region had been conquered and assimilated by the Assyrians, who had then sort of intermarried and mixed in with the population, so that the Jewish people in the south tended to think the Samaritans weren't really the people of God. Uh, they were sort of half-worldly, compromised, and so on. And there, there was some very deep animosity. Um, there would be some Jews at the time of Jesus, we know, that would not even set foot on Samaritan soil. They would rather go outside, up and round, and then back in, then travel up through Samaria. So it's something that Jesus is even going through this land. Um, we're told he's wearied uh, from his journey. It's a reminder that Jesus was a real human being. Um, and we're told it's the sixth hour, which is, is the middle of the day. So middle of the day, in a very, very hot place, you're going to be tired, you're going to be thirsty. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, again, that is already significant because... In that kind of, I don't know how hot Houston gets in the summer, probably uncomfortably hot, but in that kind of climate, you would need to go to the well each day to, to bring up the, the, the water you'd need for that day. You would do that very early in the morning before it got hot. She's coming in the middle of the day when the sun is at its highest on her own, which immediately suggests she's an outcast. She's, she's having to come at the time when no one else is around. So she's there, verse 
7, verse 8, the disciples have gone off to find some food. So it's just Jesus and now this woman at the well. Um, Jesus says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. Now, this is not breaking news, kind of, you know, a guy asks a woman who's by a well to, to help him get some water. It doesn't sound like it's kind of breaking news sort of material for us. But that was, that was shocking, what just happened. Um, if you were a Jewish man, you typically wouldn't speak to a woman that you didn't know. Uh, but then it's not just that he's a man and she's a woman. He's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. So you definitely, if you were a Jewish man, you would not talk to a Samaritan woman. But even more than that, Jesus is a, is a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's meant to be a respected Jewish leader. She is an outcast, and we'll find out why in a, in a few moments. So Jesus is, is breaking some religious, ethnic, cultural barriers here. Uh, he's smashing through them like a wrecking ball. Um, Jesus sees this woman and he, he speaks to her with dignity. He gives her agency. Um, he's not speaking to her to scold her, to abuse her, to take advantage of her, to demean her, or to ridicule her, but to dignify her. So here's the first thing we, we need to see about how Jesus relates to people like us. He approaches us. Jesus is the one who initiates relationship with this woman. He really shouldn't do. If he was following the standards of his day, he should have nothing to do with her. Frankly, if Jesus has any standards, he shouldn't really be doing anything, having anything to do with us. But he approaches us. There's nothing in us that necessarily makes us have anything going for us that he should be interested in us, but he approaches us. Well, she's surprised, verse 9. She says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John adds, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now here's the, the, the key thing I want us to see next. Jesus said to her, verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. Okay, so Jesus is offering her some special kind of living water. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, she's confused initially, but likes the sound of whatever it is Jesus is talking about. And she says, yep, up, sign me up. I'll, I'll, I'll take some of that. And then Jesus kind of slightly left field says in verse 16, yeah, get your husband for this. Maybe it's a special deal for, for couples or something. <laughs> Go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Awkward. Is, is Jesus turning into Michael Scott from the office? <laughs> What's going on here? Jesus said to her, you're right, verse whatever it is, 
17, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now we know why she's an outcast. The Jesus who approaches us is not naive about what we're like. He knows us. That's the second thing we see here. He knows us. He already knows this woman. She's not a mystery to him. She's not a surprise to him. So when he says to her, you, you, you know, go and get your husband, it's not because Jesus is oblivious and insensitive and tone deaf. It's because he wants her to know that he knows her. So he's not being a, a pastoral doofus. Um, so when she says, I've got no husband, Jesus says, yeah, I know you don't. And I know that you've had five. And you're now on man number six and you're not even married to him yet. Jesus knows us. He knows the worst things about us. He knows our mess. And the interesting thing is, as, as this conversation continues, she eventually heads back to her own community. And uh, down in verse 29, when she goes back into her town, her message to the people there is, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Jesus didn't literally tell her everything she ever did. He didn't walk through her entire life history. And, you know, then when you were five, this happened. And when you were six, this happened. But he's put his finger on what her life has become about. He's identified what has been the through line, the, the big narrative that has been driving her life. And she could say, he got me. He's nailed it. This is what I've become about. And such is Jesus' knowledge of her. Her only conclusion is, I, I think he's come from heaven. That's the only way to encounter the sense that Jesus can make of us. And so when people ask me for, for evidence for why we, we believe in Jesus, one of the pieces of evidence is, if you spend long enough with Jesus, you'll recognize he knows your heart better than you do. He's able to make sense of our lives and, and the kinds of people that we've become. He reads us. It's uncomfortable. I was sharing um, a couple of days ago with, some, with another group that there's, there was a friend of mine who, she started to read Mark's gospel because her young brother had become a Christian and she just wanted to find out more about what he was believing. She had no interest in Christianity herself, but she thought, I love my brother, he's gotten into whatever this is. I want to find out what he's now into. I'll read a gospel. And I remember that the day she became a Christian, she was saying, I was reading the gospel and I realized the gospel was reading me. And you can't keep Jesus at arm's length. It's always, as a pastor, it's always fun when someone <laughs> wants to investigate Jesus. You think, okay, yep, go investigate him. Yep. <laughs> this will be fun. <laughs> Because you just, as you, as you encounter Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you, you feel you're being scrutinized. You can't keep him at arm's length. He's saying stuff that is just unpicking things in your heart and you're thinking, hang on a sec, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm supposed to be scrutinizing you here. 
Jesus knows us. Here's the third thing for us to pull out of this. Jesus satisfies us. So Jesus says in verse 10 to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love this verse. Jesus is saying that there is a God who is there and the God who is there is a God who has something to give us. That's the most basic piece of theology Jesus wants us to know. There is a God who has a gift. Not a God who has something for us to to attain or something for us to unlock and, and earn, but there's a God who has a gift for us. And the one now speaking in verse 10 is the one who is able to give that gift of God. Jesus himself is the one who can give that gift. He is how we receive that gift, and the gift that we receive through Jesus is what he calls living water. So there they are at a well. There's, there's murky, whatever the quality of water would have been there. Uh, Jesus is saying there's, there's more than one kind of thirst in our lives. Yes, we need water. Uh, she has to come every day to draw water from that well, but every time you draw water from that well and drink it, guess what? The next day you need some more. You're thirsty again. That's the nature of life. You might think, well, it's, it's uh, Saturday today. I've got a busy week coming up. So I think what I'll do, just to take one thing off my plate for the coming week, I'm going to drink all the water I'm going to need through the week. I'll just drink all of that this morning and get that out of the way with, and then throughout the rest of the week, I won't need to think about drinking. That's one less thing on my to-do list. Don't do that, okay, firstly. Secondly, if you do do that, you'll spend the rest of the day peeing. Let's just be, be honest about that. Third thing, it won't work. If you try to somehow drink what you think is a week's worth of water in, in one sitting today, I, I don't think that will, you will probably end up in an ambulance. So don't, again, don't do that. You'll still be thirsty tomorrow. That's the nature of water. We need it and we always need it. We can only ever have enough for now. We can't have enough for much more than that. But Jesus is saying there's another kind of water that can satisfy us. Because there's more than one kind of thirst in our lives. Alongside our thirst for for physical water, Jesus is saying there's a thirst in our souls. That we need to have quenched only through God himself. In other words, there's a thirst that nothing in this world is going to satisfy And in our more perceptive moments, we know that. And we're beginning to see what that thirst has has begun to look like in this woman. That's why Jesus at this point says, go and get your husband. Because this is the area of life where she is trying to find satisfaction. She's trying to find living water through relationship. And Jesus is saying, actually, I'm the one who can satisfy. I don't think it's insignificant. She's had five husbands. She's on man number six. We know that seven is a special number in the Bible, and number seven is standing right in front of her, and that's going to be the one that works. There is a thirst in every single one of us that nothing in this world can satisfy. And whatever it is that we've made our functional saviour, whatever it is that we've made our attempt to find satisfaction, whatever it is we're looking for to satisfy us, we never can have enough of it. 
Uh, Rockefeller was famously asked that the amazingly wealthy man from wherever he lived, something century, I don't know. Uh, someone, he was like the, a gajillionaire. He was the, the richest man on the planet or something. Um, someone asked him once, how much money is enough? And he answered with so much honesty, he said, just a little bit more. And that's the way of things. If you think money's going to be thing that, the thing that satisfies you, however much you, can, however much you get, you, you then just think, I, I just need a bit more than that. Same with relationships, same with career, same with family. Whatever it is we're looking for to satisfy us, we'll never have enough of it to find satisfaction. Because that is not the thing that is designed to satisfy us. Only Jesus can. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. We will find satisfaction. That's the first difference. Moreover, Jesus then continues to say in verse 14, the water that I give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, the nature of physical water is that you, you're never satisfied and you constantly need to be taking in more and more. The nature of the water Jesus is giving us is that it does satisfy, and more than that, it becomes itself, we then become a source of living water for other people. It becomes a spring within us. We, we don't need to keep finding things to top us up. We actually become a source of it, welling up to eternal life. Only Jesus can satisfy us. And of course, we, we know through the rest of John's gospel how it is that Jesus provides that satisfaction. Because one of the things he said on the cross was, I thirst. And so Jesus was willing to go through that, that spiritual being parched so that we could find spiritual satisfaction. And here's why this is relevant to our, our topic uh, this weekend um, that the English word sex comes from the Latin word, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of this, um, so apologies to any classicists in the room. The Latin word it comes from is called sicare, or something like that. Let's just assume I'm right. Um, and that, that word literally means to, to sort of have been cut off from something. And so part of our understanding of, of sex is that it's part of how we recognize we're, we're incomplete. We're part of something that is meant to be whole. And so for many people, sex is, is the place they, they're most likely to look to feel complete and whole again, to not feel cut off. And Jesus is showing us actually know that the real wholeness, that real sense of completion is only going to come through him. Otherwise, we'll end up like this, this woman, uh, constantly thinking maybe the next partner is going to be the one where it'll all just work and click. The other tragic di dimension of this is in the, the culture of, of John chapter 4, it was only men who could initiate divorce. So when Jesus says to her, you've had five husbands, what he means is five men have rejected you. Excuse me. <laughs> Those kalachis are doing their work. Um, 
And I think, I think those two things go together. That when you, when you are looking for someone to be the ultimate satisfaction in your life, you're going to be very easy to be used and discarded by them. Or you're going to f- end up crushing them. So what this woman actually needs is, is a man who really can be all that she needs, who can bear the weight of her precious soul and who is not going to be crushed in the process or, or use her up and discard her in the process. And that is what she has in Jesus. He is the one who satisfies us. But the final thing for us to, to see out, out of this, I love this, um, is just how much Jesus loves us. Uh, the disciples come back in verse 27. Uh, we're told that they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. Just imagine culturally, they're like, what is going on here? Um, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They're just a little too gun-shy to kind of challenge him on it. The woman leaves, she goes back. By the way, notice in verse 28, the woman left her water jar. Okay, the one thing she came to the well for was water. She has now encountered the living water through Jesus. She's forgotten she's thirsty. She leaves her water jar, she goes away to the town, she says to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did, can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Okay, so this community that she was the outcast from, she's now going back into saying, guys, come and meet this guy. And they follow her. So they're all on their way to Jesus in verse 30. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the disciples are asking Jesus, eat. They've, they've gone out, they found the food, they brought it back, giving it to Jesus. He says to them, I've got food to eat you don't know about. They go into a tailspin in verse 33. Has anyone else brought him something to eat? They're thinking, we, we Google mapped this. There was nowhere else to get food. We went to the nearest place. There's, there's not like there's a, you know, a Sonic or something down the road that we, we missed here. And here's the key thing. Jesus said to them in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is on his way to a cross to empty himself so that we might be filled up, to taste death so that we might have life, to be spiritually parched so that we could be spiritually satisfied. And Jesus says, doing that doing the will of the one who sent him, accomplishing that work, Jesus says that's food to him. It's food for Jesus to be your saviour. He's not doing this because there's some contractual obligation that he discovered he, he, he has to do this. He's not doing this because he knows he can and therefore he feels like he probably ought to do this for you. No, doing the Father's will of being our Savior is food to Jesus. That doesn't mean it's easy. We know it's going to be, we know it's going to be agony for him. But as, as the letter to the Hebrews says, he's the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus is the one who satisfies us, but Jesus loves to do that. So Christian brother, Christian sister, I guess what I'm trying to say to you this morning is Jesus loves being your saviour. So when you come to Jesus this morning again saying, Jesus, I, I'm still needy, 
I'm still not there yet. I'm still messed up. I have fresh sin for you this morning. I can't get my life together. Jesus isn't weary of you. You're not wearing him down. Jesus loves being your saviour. This, this is what he's about. This is what he's for. We're never going to exhaust him. So with that in mind, I want us to think about how we try to help the world in which we live, the cultural moment in which we find ourselves, discover that Jesus. So to understand how to reach our neighbour, we, we've got to understand our neighbour. And I want to share just a few things that help me account for how society has got to where it is, the, the peculiar intriguing cultural moment in which we find ourselves didn't sort of happen by accident. So I want us to just walk through a few things that I think show us how we've got to where we are culturally. Um, some of us are of the age where this is the culture we're in right now, the particular moment we're in. This is all we've known. If you're under sort of 25, 30, this is, this is the only world you've ever known. For those of us who are a bit older than that, we've had to sort of migrate into this cultural moment and some of us are still a bit baffled by it. But for all of us, it's good to know how we've got to where we are. So here are four things that I think have changed in the last 15 years, perhaps, that, that help us account for why people are thinking the way they are about some of these issues. So let me just walk through these with you. The first thing is that our, our moral intuitions have changed. Our moral intuitions have changed within, within Western culture. Um, there's a, an amazing book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He's, he's not a Christian, but he's, a, I think, a social psychologist or something like that. And he shows that actually our, our ethical thinking is more intuitive than it is rational. So we hear about a particular moral issue, and he says we, we tend to just have an instinct about it. We have a kind of a gut reaction as to whether something is right or wrong. We don't necessarily have a really fully thought through ethical system, we just have moral taste buds. We have moral intuitions. And he says what is driving those intuitions has changed in the last 15 or so years. And so today, the main kind of moral instincts we have as to whether we think something's right or wrong tend to be framed by things like this. Is it harmful or not? If something doesn't seem obviously harmful, it's going to be hard for me to say that I think it's wrong. That's one of the main moral intuitions driving the way we think. Is, is something freeing or oppressive? Uh, the third one he talks about is, is it fair or is it discriminatory? If those are the three kind of primary moral taste buds that people have in our culture today, we can see why culture has changed its mind on something like gay marriage. When I was an undergraduate student 25 years ago, Gosh, 25 years ago. Um, most non-Christian people were probably still, on the whole, against gay marriage. They, they, they still had the, the belief that marriage was between a man and a woman. That has changed. It has changed because our moral intuitions have changed. So applying that topic to these moral intuitions, is it harmful or not? Well, how, how can I say that the, the, the nice gay couple down the road, if they get married, that's not harming me, so how can I say it's wrong? Is it freeing or oppressive? Well, it feels a little bit oppressive to say that they can't express their love in whatever way they choose to and, and, and to call it a marriage. 
Is it fair or discriminatory? Well, how can it be fair if some of us can, can marry and live out that and some of us can't? And so most people today, it, they don't need to think about it. Intuitively, gay marriage seems obviously right. And again, we've got to understand those intuitions. Um, I was watching a, as a BBC, BBC show back in the UK where they, they take some moral issue, they get a few people with different viewpoints to kind of argue about it, and then the studio audience kind of weighs in and votes on who they think's right. And they had a particular episode on whether, whether the church should allow and bless same-sex marriage. And they had a, a, a lady on who was a, a, a prominent gay rights activist within, within Christian churches in the UK, giving a case for why the church should allow gay marriage, and her, her case was very simple. She said, God is love. This is love. Therefore, if, if God is blessing this love, the church should bless it too. And you could feel the audience entirely tracking with her and going, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds right. Come on, church, get on with it. And then they had a, a, someone speaking up for, for a more traditional understanding of marriage, a, a Christian pastor, evangelical Christian. And his response was, yes, but the, but the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman. And every time he was countered with something, his response would be, but, but the Bible says, but the Bible says. Now, he's right. The Bible does say marriage is between a man and a woman. But he was appealing to a moral instinct the audience didn't share. So he was saying, but the Bible says, and you could hear the audience thinking, so? Why do, why do we care what the Bible says? He was appealing to a moral authority that they didn't share. And it made me realize, as, as we have these conversations with some of our friends, often we're appealing to moral authorities that they don't agree with. And we're talking past each other rather than to each other. And so as we engage in these conversations, it helps to know what, what is driving someone's moral intuitions because we can then begin to appeal to their moral instincts to try and make a case for, for what we know to be true from God's word. So I was thinking, and it's, it's easy to, see, to say this when you're sat on your couch eating potato chips, watching someone else having to do this on a TV screen, and you don't have any of the pressure, but I remember thinking, okay, I think the response, and I had a few days to think about this, so I'm not saying I could have done this in the heat of the moment. If her argument was God is love and this is love, therefore God blesses it and the church should, the response to that is to say God is love. Which means God knows far more about love than we do. Which means we need God to show us how to love each other well. Otherwise we're going to harm each other because what I think is loving to you may be killing you. So I'm appealing to that moral intuition of harm. Uh, we recognize generally in, in life that there's, there are different types of love depending on the context that we're in. So if I was to say to you the following statements, I love my mother. If I was married and was to say to you, I love my wife. If I was to say, I love, I love my dog. And I love kolaches, kolaches, what are those things? Those, the new love of my life, I love kolaches. Am I saying that right? Good, good. Um, and as you hear those statements, you instinctively, 
you make a distinction between what I mean, what I mean about the word, from the word love each, in each of those settings, right? You're thinking love for mother, love for kolaches. Those are different types of love. And you just mentally sort that through in your mind. You don't even think about it. We recognize there are different types of love appropriate to different things. And if we switch all of those up and get them confused, it's not going to go well for us. And so we, we instinctively know we, we need to order and sort through our loves depending on what it is we're talking about. That not every form of love is appropriate for every kind of thing. And God is the one who really shows us how to do that. Um, if I love my dog the way I love kolaches, something unethical is going to happen. <laughs> if I love my, my mother the way that I love my dog, I'm going to be the subject of a Netflix documentary. Uh, we need God's help. So our moral intuitions have changed. Secondly, our view of minorities has changed. Uh, we look back, I'm talking generally about Western culture, so we being us in the Western world, we look back on past discrimination against LGBT people. We see some of the pain caused by that and we feel a sense of regret. Um, you may rem remember a few years ago the movie The Imitation Game about a guy called Alan Turing who helped kind of crack the Enigma Code in the Second World War. Have you seen that movie? Um, now, an extraordinary contribution to the, the Allied war effort. Um, uh, it wasn't, yeah, we fought in that war too, by the way. It wasn't just, it wasn't just you guys. We, we, we did help a little bit. We did, we did some stuff. It wasn't just Tom Hanks that won the Second World War. Um, <laughs> Alan Turing, I mean, this was an astonishing contribution, cracking that code, and because he was a gay man, he, he was arrested after the war, he was chemically castrated, he took his own life. And we look back and we think, that's not right. That's not right. And some of that sense of regret, we as Christians share, actually. We, we, we think too, yeah, we look back on some of those forms of discrimination and the way certain people were demonized them, and we share that sense of regret, and rightfully so. But that looking back and feeling regret about how certain groups were treated in the past means that we now want to privilege certain voices to kind of compensate for that. And so we privilege minority and victim voices. And if you find yourself at the intersection of more than one such victim group status, you have even more credibility. So, putting it frankly, if you, are, if you are black, female, and lesbian, you have more moral authority when it comes to speaking about issues of sexuality than if you are white, male, and straight. Uh, some have more right to speak, some have less right to speak in our culture. It's not a level playing field, and it's not meant to be. And built into this is a concern for harm. We, we don't culturally, we don't want minority groups who've had a rough time of things historically to be harmed in the present. We want to protect them. Now this came home to me, I was speaking at an East Coast University uh, pre-pandemic, whenever that was. <laughs> 30 years ago, it may as well have been. Um, I was invited by one of the, the Christian groups on campus that asked me to come in and just do a some teaching for them on the gospel and sexuality, just for their regular Wednesday night meeting or whatever it was that they had. Um, that was all it was intended to be, just 
me speaking to the Christians about this particular issue. Um, word got out that that was the topic and that I was the speaker, and the LGBT advocacy group on campus sent out an email saying this, this event needs to be protested. And so I turn up and there's, there's a group of student protesters there. The great thing about student protesters is that they are the only ones who were there early. <laughs> so it was just me and them for, for about 20, 20 minutes. And so we, we got chatting. They, they were delightful, by the way. They, they had pizza. They shared their pizza with me. Um, but I was chatting to her. I said, listen, I, I can see you have concerns about this thing tonight. If you, if you feel able to articulate those concerns, I'd love to hear them. I'm concerned that you have concerns. So each of them kind of sent, went around and, and said what they were worried was going to be happening. And in one or two cases, it was, there were fears that I could allay. Someone said, I, I think you're going to be encouraging Christians to bully gay people. And I said, if that was the case, I'd protest me too. But what came through as, they went, as we went around the group was they thought my words were going to cause harm to gay people. And when I kind of asked them to, to explain what they meant by that, it became very clear to me that harm was merely the presence of a different viewpoint, even if that viewpoint is respectfully and graciously articulated. Just the very presence of my viewpoint they thought was going to be harmful, even if I was being respectful and, and polite in the way that I expressed it. Which is why we have this, this culture of censorship, because if I believe your words are going to cause harm to someone else, I don't need to debate you, I don't need to out-argue you, I don't need to out-reason you, I just need to, to silence you. And that's the context in which we find ourselves, where there, there are increasing calls for certain voices to be, to be silenced in the public spaces. Uh, the third thing that's changed is our view of sex and marriage has changed. This is a longer-term change that's taken place over a longer period of time. Sex has, has now become a matter primarily of recreation and should never have to be more than that for people today. That's the, the current thinking. If you want to have kids, that's great. You can have sex to have kids, but you shouldn't have to want to have kids to have sex. It is a matter of recreation. And more than that, it, it's seen actually as, as one of the primary ways of... of self-authentication. It's how you express who you truly are through sexual fulfillment. And therefore, it has become an existential necessity. And anything that looks like it might constrain anybody else's sexual freedom is seen as an existential threat. So, this is, this is why, when it comes to the issue of, of abortion, this is why that the scientific progress we see in understanding what a, uh, an unborn baby is able to experience and to, to feel, uh, that the sort of incredible information we get now about the development of a baby in a womb, that is not making a difference to the issue of abortion. Because it's not really about the status of the unborn child. It's about protecting the right for sexual freedom and sexual self-expression and anything that's that threatens that is seen as an existential threat because we have to have sexual freedom 
That is where we look to, to in life for meaning. Does that make sense? So our view of sex has changed. Our view of marriage has changed because marriage has gone from being a lifelong covenant ordered towards procreation, even if it doesn't always result in that, to what is now effectively a flexible romantic contract. Marriage is a way of saying we feel really romantically fulfilled by each other and we want to celebrate that feeling. And for as long as we have that feeling, we'll stick around. But if at any point either of us isn't feeling romantically satisfied by the other person, we don't have to stick around. So it's, it's flexible and contractual. For as long as you're delivering and I'm delivering, we're okay. But if one of us isn't, we can, we can each of us move away from this thing. Now, if that is how you see marriage, it then seems cruel and unusual not to allow same-sex couples to have that kind of marriage as well, because they're thinking, but, but we feel romantic fulfillment, so surely it's fair for us to have our day in the sun as well. Our view of marriage has changed. Um, I'm an ordained pastor. I, I get to take weddings from time to time. It's a joy and a privilege to do that. I now have a condition, because our view of marriage has changed, when a couple says to me, would you, would you officiate at our wedding? Um, a couple from church, I'll say, I, I would love to. I do have one condition. You may not write your own vows. Because in my experience, when a couple writes their own vows, the vows they write entirely miss the point of the wedding ceremony. The vows are all about how we feel now romantically about each other. That's nice. That's sweet. That's not what a wedding is meant to establish. A wedding is meant to establish what are, your, what are you promising to one another? What are you committing to? We know you love each other. I mean, it's your wedding day. We don't need 17 verses of really bad poetry to know that you guys are, are into each other. But as your friends and family, we, we do need to know what you're promising, what you're covenanting to each other, because that, that's what we're here to hold you to. And the final thing that's changed is our, our anthropology has changed, our understanding of what it is that makes us who we are. And so today, the, the way you understand who you are, as I was saying last night, is you, you look inside your heart, you look at what the instincts and yearnings and longings and desires are, that shows you who you truly are, and that is who you have to be true to. And so the real hero in today's culture isn't necessarily the, the soldier who comes back wounded from the battlefield, the real hero is the person who discovers who they truly are inside and remains true to that even when other people don't affirm it. That is seen as being the real hero. And so our physical bodies are, are seen as nothing but accidental and incidental to who we are. What really matters is, is who we feel ourselves to be deep down inside and, and it's everybody else's job to affirm that. So our anthropology has changed. So those are four things that have changed. Our moral intuitions have changed. Our, our view of minority groups has changed. Our view of sex and marriage has changed. And our anthropology has changed. And the cumulative effect of all of that is that the Christian sexual ethic now isn't just seen as old-fashioned and quaint. It's seen as dangerous. 
Don't you miss just being seen as old-fashioned and quaint? Okay, those were, those were the good old days. And so what that means is, is people think we are dangerous in what we believe. Because of these, these changes, because of where culture is now at, our beliefs are seen as a threat. And it also means that we have a lot of people in our churches who are, are not convinced by what the Bible teaches. And among those who, who are convinced what the Bible teaches, they might be biblically convinced, but they're not necessarily emotionally convinced. Yeah, I, I guess I see that the Bible says that, but it kind of stinks. I, I, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like that's a healthy thing to believe. And if someone is biblically convinced but not emotionally convinced, they're not going to stay biblically convinced. So if I've, if I've slightly depressed you with all of that, that was the goal. Uh, we live in challenging times. But the gospel is powerful. And God is able but it's good for us to understand where some of our secular neighbours are coming from. I did a talk once for a ministry I was working with on, on transgenderism. They gave me the title, How Can I Know My Gender? Um, it was an event we were, we were going to live stream and, and all the rest of it. And as we were advertising it, we had quite a few churches and Christians write into us saying, why are you addressing such a ridiculous question? And it made me realize if, if we think our neighbor's question is ridiculous, it's unlikely we're going to have a compelling response to it. So if someone's saying, how do I know my gender, it feels like an absurd question, part of what we need to do as, as good Christian neighbors to them is to think, well, how have they got to the point where that feels like a burning question to them, a real question to them? Why is that what is heavy on their heart? And until we can understand that, I doubt we're going to have a compelling answer. Because we can reason with people, we can, we can love people, we can persuade people, but I don't think we're going to ridicule or demean people into the kingdom. And so however at home or not at home we feel in this particular cultural moment, we do need to understand it. If we're, if we're those who've had to kind of adjust into this cultural moment... We've got to understand how people have got to where they are if we're going to engage with them and find traction. And if we're those who this is the only world we've ever known, we need to know where this cultural moment has come from because it ain't normal. And we need to see some of those underlying assumptions and foundations again to see how the gospel comes to bear on these things because ultimately we believe Jesus is going to be good news. He's the one who says that it is his food to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. And we want people to meet that Jesus.